Absolutely how you start Christmas. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Illuminate. It is so, so great to have you join us. Perhaps you've been to a number of Christmas Eve services before. Perhaps this is your first one. But at some point, maybe you've heard a pastor say something like, remember to keep Christ in Christmas. Or don't forget, Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, when you come at Easter, you never hear a pastor give a reminder about Jesus being the reason for the season. But there's something different about Christmas. People feel like they have to say that. Well, why is it? Well, the reality is, is because that Christmas for many people has become little more than a massive secular holiday. It's kind of like the world is throwing this birthday party, but we forgot to invite the birthday boy. For example, the world's most expensive Christmas tree, created in 2010, valued at $11 million. Now you're like, how does a Christmas tree worth $11 million? Well, let me show you a little close-up of how it's decorated. Decorated with gold watches and diamond necklaces, $11 million worth. Now what's really interesting about this tree is where it's located, Abu Dhabi. Now, the United Arab Emirates isn't exactly known for its Christianity, right? And yet, they have the iconic symbol of a secular Christmas. So what I thought we would do is take a few minutes and use the three symbols that the Bible uses to explain the meaning of Christmas. These symbols are actually right back here on the wall. Cradle, cross, crown. So what started in Bethlehem with the cradle would ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. And the cross is the central figure of all Christianity for the simple reason that if Jesus didn't do what he said he was going to do, then, as the Bible so straightforwardly says, Christians should be pitied. We should all be pitied. We should all kind of be patted on the head and sent on our naive little ways if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. But you have to ask the question, why is Christianity a thing, right? Like, why is it still here? The only plausible explanation is that Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do, but it didn't in their form. Because what would happen is that crown of thorns would be exchanged for a crown of glory. And wouldn't it make sense that if Jesus actually has power over death, he could extend that power to you? And therein lies the real gift of Christmas, and that is eternal life. So many of you might be familiar with some of the parts of the Christmas story. It's been told many, many times. Of course, it's found in the Bible. And we're going to look at it from the beginning. There's this author named Luke. He was actually a physician by trade, highly skilled, very well educated. But he takes off his doctor hat and he puts on his investigative hat. And he's seeking to understand who this Jesus is. So he's conducting interviews. He's asking the people that knew Jesus. He's interviewing family. He talks to the 12 guys that lived and breathed with him and spent three years with him, his disciples. And basically what he builds is a biography on the life of Christ. That's actually what you have in your hands. That's really what the part of the New Testament is. They contain biographies of the life of Jesus. Some of them are firsthand accounts, eyewitness accounts. And the story is quite remarkable, although it, it starts off very, very simply. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So we're talking about the first century A.D. 
that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which is kind of a big deal because Rome ruled most of the known world at this time. Then you get this parenthetical statement. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Just let me say this real quick. Sometimes you read these little details in the Bible and you're like, what's the point of that? The Bible is not written in the style of a myth. Okay? The story of Jesus doesn't start out with a, once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's not fable. It's actually written in historical narrative style. That's why you get these seemingly meaningless little statements that don't advance the larger story at all. But they do, watch this now, they do actually root it in real human history. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So we know a little something about these, these characters, right? We know about Caesar Augustus. He was a very, very powerful man. He was the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Rome in the first century was a mess. Tons of brutality. They'd gone through about 100 years worth of civil war. Life was very, very difficult. If you lived to be 50 years old, you were doing really, really well. For the common person, everyday life was a struggle. Not a lot of joy or peace in the world at this time. Quirinius, we know, was this local governor. We, we actually know some, a little something about this town of Nazareth. What's interesting is that for many years, people doubted the story of Jesus because there was no archaeological evidence supporting the idea that the city of Nazareth existed in the first century AD. In fact, there was a book written called The Myth of Nazareth, and the author put forth this idea, if Nazareth never existed, then Jesus never existed. And then in 2009, archaeologists uncovered, guess what? Houses dating from the first century AD in the town of Nazareth with artifacts and pottery. I share this with you to help you understand the Bible does talk about real people, real places, and real events. And it contains these seemingly innocent details, but the reality is there's a whole lot being communicated, especially when we read the details surrounding Jesus' birth. So, verse four, verse five. He, Joseph, went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So they travel from Nazareth, which was a very small town, less than about 75 homes, they think, to Bethlehem for the census. They took part in the census for two reasons. Number one, so that the Roman government could collect taxes, but number two, so they could raise an army. So all that makes sense. And this trip about a week long, 90 miles, they arrive in Bethlehem, and then uh, the backstory or the story within the story is kind of shocking because, well, Mary's pregnant and the baby isn't Joseph's. So imagine that conversation going down, right? This is probably most likely a teenage couple. Mary approaches Joseph while they're engaged, and she says, <clears throat> Joseph, I've got something to share with you. What is it, Mary? I'm pregnant. And Joseph's like, I thought you were a good girl. I thought I knew you. And then she drops this statement on him. I'm pregnant and, uh, and I'm still a virgin. Now what's Joseph thinking? She's mental. She's mental. 
So the rest of the story goes like this. An angel has to appear to Joseph and says, Joseph, calm down. Everything she says is true. But then this angel communicates something really important to Joseph that's going to set up the entire life of Jesus. He says, let me tell you about this baby. Going to have two very significant titles. Number one, son of man. Number two, son of God. I'll let you know ahead of time that son of man refers to his his humanity and son of God refers to his deity. Those two things are going to become very important in the story as we continue to read. Verse six, so while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room where? In the, actually, that's not what the Greek text communicates. I know, right? We've all been fooled. That word for guest room actually literally means the room that someone would have inside their house. We think Mary and Joseph showed up in, in Bethlehem and all these hotels and motels had all these like no vacancy signs everywhere, you know, like keep moving. That's actually not the case. This is his ancestral home. That's why he had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where his ancestors were. That's where you went to be counted. In other words, this dude's got friends in Bethlehem and family. And he shows up with a girl that he's not married to, and she's pregnant, and family's like, move on. You can stay somewhere else. I said earlier that the details surrounding the birth of Jesus are there for a reason, and one of the things that would come to characterize the life of Jesus is the fact that the man, he understands rejection without raising your hand or responding out loud. Have you ever faced rejection from someone you love? Not just from friends, but perhaps even from family? Jesus knows what that's like. In fact, he's described as a man of sorrows. So there's no room in the house, but if you want to stay in the basement underneath the house, you can. That's where commonly animals were kept. And Jesus is placed in a manger. So while the, the facts surrounding his birth are, you know, they're not all that exciting, the announcement is quite astonishing. Verse eight, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. This is consistent. Whenever angels show up in the Bible, humans are, they're totally freaked out and angels have to say, calm down, we're the good ones. We have a message for you on behalf of God. Literally, that's what the, the, the word angel means, is messenger. And here's what they say. Do not be afraid. I've got really good news for you. It's going to cause great joy, but the news isn't just for you. It's for everybody. Now, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in humanity. And literally what's being described is there's good news. Great joy is about to enter the world, and it's for every single person on the planet. Okay, details. Verse 11. Today, in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Now, to the Jewish mind, they immediately recognize, oh, we have like hundreds of years worth of prophecy telling us, pointing forward to a forthcoming Messiah. And the angel's like, exactly right. Read those carefully. All those prophecies are fulfilled 
in this baby that's about to be born, including 700 BC, the prophet Isaiah says that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. All of these things are coming together now. He is the Lord. So how are we going to find him? Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and not in a safe space at all, but lying in a manger. So an, an angel appears. This is really interesting, too, because the angel makes the announcement to shepherds. Now, you may know something about shepherds at the time, but they were absolutely in the bottom, the bottom of the social scale. Their testimony was not admissible in court because they were considered liars, cheats, and thieves. They were always grazing their sheep on other people's property. They couldn't be trusted. And yet, details are important. The announcement is made to the lowliest of the low. It's kind of like God's way of saying, you know all the people that y'all don't want to associate with? Well, guess what? They're going to be among the first to get this good news. And by the way, Jesus could have been born behind palace gates. Right? It would have been really, really hard to access him, but something's being communicated here, and that is Jesus is absolutely for Everybody, See, the details are important. The story's quite amazing. He'll bring joy for all people. He is the Messiah. He's accessible. And the world needed joy at this time. I said earlier, you know, the planet was just filled with brutality under Roman rule. Life was very, very difficult. A lot of, you might say, depression, war, people dying. (sighs) Sound familiar? It's estimated that in the next three months... So looking back a year, with the conflict in Ukraine, nearly 250,000 people will die. One year, 250,000 people will die. And the world Jesus entered in the first century is a lot like our world today. Now, this joy would come, though, in the form of a savior. So this question has to be asked, right? I mean, doesn't it make sense? It's like, If this joy comes in the form of a baby who is a savior and it's for everybody, then you know what that implies, right? What that implies is that we all need to be saved. So how does that work? What does that mean? Well, Jesus actually explains it himself. He says, the son of man, there it is. That's the title, a reference to himself. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is where the story gets super interesting. You read that word ransom. We talked about this last Sunday in church. And you think of someone who's been kidnapped. And you might be thinking, I've never been kidnapped, right? I've never been held hostage. A ransom, it's like a ransom note where something is asked in order for someone to be released. And you're like, I've never been held hostage. I've never been held captive. Yes, you have. We all have. And the thing or the person that is holding us captive It's actually us. I'll prove it to you. Why do you find it so incredibly hard to stop doing the things you know you shouldn't be doing? Why is it so incredibly difficult for you to break the habits that you know are robbing you of life, not giving you life? You probably have some little corner of your life that nobody knows about, and it's pretty gnarly behind that door. So, in a way, we're all kind of 
held captive by our own bad choices. The Bible has a word to describe this, a very small word. You don't hear it very often today, but it's the word sin. And the reality is every man, woman, and child is born a sinner. This is why one of the Bible's authors describes Christmas like this. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law. That's interesting, born in law. Like, what's the law? Well, take the Ten Commandments, for example. They're there to essentially prove that we're all lawbreakers. If we were to be real with each other, let's just be real with each other for a second. Every single one of us breaks the Ten Commandments consistently, probably most all of them, a number of times every single day. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. You know what that word redeem literally means? To buy back. You might think of it as somebody paying a ransom note. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You get bought back and then you're placed into this new family. It's the family of God. Very, very high price though. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life and its location, eternal life's location is in Jesus Christ. It goes back to what I said earlier. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there ain't no hope. There's no hope because if he doesn't have the power over death, he can't extend it to anybody else. But if he did, then I'm sorry, but Jesus gets the microphone. He gets the spotlight and everybody needs to listen to what he has to say. It's, uh, it's pretty compelling that God would look at all of humanity and be so moved out of compassion that he would give, that he would make an incredible sacrifice. There's a reason why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world, that's the motivation behind what God did. His love for you. He gave his son. I... I've told our, our people this a number of times. I, I love the people that attend Illuminate Community Church, but I love my kids more. And if you ask me to give the life of any of my kids, for any of you, not gonna do it. I don't love you that much. Sorry. But the Bible says that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, there's a simple principle in life. It plays out in your relationships. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the what? Love. So God knows what he's doing here. He's communicating a lot through the life of Jesus. And this gift of eternal life, well, uh, that's the greatest gift of all. A mom was, uh, she was noticing that her young son was captivated, a little too much so, by all the gifts that he was expecting to receive at Christmas. And so she sits him down and says, son, I need to explain something to you. This is the real meaning of Christmas. You know, Jesus is the greatest gift giver of all because Jesus comes to the earth in the form of a baby. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But more so, the exclamation mark, right, is kind of at Easter. and He dies on the cross as a man, son of man. His humanity, that allows him to be nailed to a cross. And in his deity, that allows him to take all the junk that we've ever done. And he gets to pay for all that. See, here's the thing about God. He's only bound by one thing, and what is it? His nature. God is just. He can't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that we do. That would not be a just God. You don't want to serve a God of injustice. The problem is we're all guilty. So something has to be done. That's why Jesus comes. 
takes all of your junk on himself and in exchange you get eternal life. Really good deal. So she's explaining these things to her son saying, Jesus is the ultimate gift giver, son. Remember that. So he's thinking about it. You know, the little wheels in his head are spinning and spinning and he sits down and this year, instead of writing a note to Santa, he's gonna write a note to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I've been a really good boy for the last six months. He knows that's not true. He crosses out six and writes three. Dear Jesus, I've been a really good boy for the last three months. But he knows that's not true either. He crosses out three and writes one. Dear Jesus, I've been a really good boy for the last month. Crosses out the word month and writes week. Dear Jesus, I've been a really good boy the last week. But he knows that's not true either. Puts the pen down. And he's thinking about what to do next. And then he notices his mom's nativity set by the tree. Walks over and he gently picks up Mary and then pulls a sock out of his sock drawer. And he takes Mary and he carefully puts her inside the sock, wraps her up real nice, and then places her on top of his dresser. And he goes back to his note, and he starts over. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, (laughs) smart kid, smart kid, right? It's a silly little story, but there's a point to it because there's a little piece of that kid in every human heart. In other words, it's there to receive and to receive and to receive. And you want to know why the world is so jacked up? It's because we will never have peace on earth until we make peace with God first. Very famous line in the Bible that's often misquoted. People think the angels proclaim, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Like we're all just going to come and get along now that Jesus is here. No, that's not what the text says. It says, peace on earth and God's favor upon those with whom he is pleased. How do you please God? By receiving the gift. Then you make peace with God. And let me tell you something. Once a person makes peace with God, they're then highly motivated to make peace with others. And that's what's missing in the world. That's what was missing 2,000 years ago, and it's still missing today. That's why the world is jacked up, because people have rejected God's very gracious gift. So there's a lot of struggle, uh, and, and life is a struggle. The Bible's very candid in saying that you're going to have tribulation in this world. Then Jesus says, I've overcome it. No matter what happens in the here and now, you can know you have the satisfaction of the life to come. But this life is difficult. The holidays, for many people, bring that out in unique ways. And it's a struggle. 
Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was a great poet who knew personal suffering. While married, a great tragedy occurred. His wife's dress caught fire. And he was there and attempted to put the fire out, but he couldn't. He couldn't save her and she died. A couple years later, he receives a letter in the mail informing him that his son, who was a soldier fighting in the Civil War, he fought for the Union Army, he'd been badly wounded and they thought he would be paralyzed. He's 57 years old, a widowed man with six kids. And in an attempt to unwind all that was going on, it's like Christmas is supposed to be about peace and joy, and yet I've got all this trauma in my life. And so he sits down and he begins to write a poem. And as he's writing, he hears church bells ringing. And he also hears a choir singing, peace on earth. And he ends up incorporating that into his poem. Years later, this poem would be set to music. And it's called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, written Christmas Day, 1868. There's one line in that song that is particularly pointed. He writes, God is not dead, nor is he silent, nor does he sleep. He was raised in a Christian home by Puritan parents, and in moments like this, he learned to lean into his faith. And the proof that God is not dead, that God does not sleep, is really found in the meaning of Christmas because of what God was willing to do on your behalf that you couldn't do for yourself. That's a pretty good God. And in the midst of all this turmoil in the world, what God is saying is, can we make peace between each other? Because once that happens, then we have a chance at having peace on earth. But it starts vertically before it happens horizontally. So I don't know where you're at this evening, but let me just tell you, you're not here by accident. If someone invited you, that person cares deeply for you. I can tell you that there's been a lot of people that have been praying just for you. And their prayer is that God would impact you in some way. Maybe you've heard something tonight that you haven't heard before. Maybe it's been put in a way that you haven't heard before. And maybe God is just kind of tugging on you a little bit. We would love to have a conversation with you about that, if you'll let us. On the card on the back of your seat there, you give us your information, circle that cross, you can drop it off in the box or at the tent. We would love to have that conversation with you. It would be our great privilege to do so. Will you pray with me? Father, we have talked about some heavy things tonight because the reality is this occasion marks the moment in time when light absolutely broke through the darkness. When for the first time in human history, there's a real opportunity for peace to be brought to this earth when we first make peace with you. We are our own worst enemies. Jesus came to set us free from that and to give us a new life. And he modeled that life himself. That's how good he is. So Lord, we pray for every heart in the room that you would continue to draw. We ask it 
in the name of the one who makes it all possible, and his name is Jesus Christ.